The following podcast may be explicit. One Joe Young presents Adventures from the Shed, a tabletop RPG podcast. You can find us online at adventuresfromtheshed.com. Welcome to one of our special sidebar episodes where we talk about issues related to gaming rather than recording actual play. Today, Joe and our special guest, Chris, help me think about how to structure combat encounters in my adventures. JJ and Mickey also chime in. Hope you find this enjoyable and enlightening. Hello and welcome to The Shed for Adventures from The Shed. This is a special sidebar episode. It's going to be moderated not by the illustrious mighty Joe Young, but instead by Kurt Schumacher. Why is that? Because I've got something I want to learn about today and I've got a special limited cast and crew of illustrious dungeon masters, game masters, and the wife of a game master and talented player. We're going to go around the table and introduce ourselves, but before we do that, remember, you can find us at adventuresfromtheshed.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Bing. You can find us on... iTunes. iTunes. You can find us perhaps... Stitcher Radio. Somewhere that you shouldn't find us. But you know what? Throw us into Google. You'll find us. So we're going to start at the left with the king. The king? The king of the shed, one mighty Joe Young. Oh, that would be me. I am Joe, and I am a part of the uh, podcast that Kurt is currently moderating today. Joe, you're not just a part. You're you're like you're, I, a, I like you're the fulcrum around which we. <laughs> you're the keystone. You are the keystone. The keystone. The fulcrum. Yeah. Or so you are the Pennsylvania the, of this group. I am. You are the heart. Excellent. Could, could have been keister though. I'm not sure. Next translation. Uh, JJ here. Uh, I'll be playing the part of a um, someone with expertise, apparently. Okay. This is Chris. I'll also be someone with expertise, hopefully, to help Kurt out here. And we have... Hi, everyone. This is Mickey. I may or may not speak up. I apparently am here to even out the gender bias. Awesome. Well, I put Mickey last because I feel like she and I are... (laughs) Because she deserves to be last. No, no, no. no. She deserves to be first. (laughs) Oh, dear God. (laughs) She's a goddess among women. But she and I are in the same boat. The reason we're doing this sidebar is because, one, I love sidebar podcasts. These are the podcasts where we talk about mechanics of gaming or how to game or how to run a game or something cool that's happening in Dungeons and Dragons or Dungeon World or RPG Land. And I love them and I wanted to do one. But particularly, I am thinking about running a home game soon and it'll be my first game. And I know this is something Mickey has thought about as well, which is why she's here. Absolutely. So we are here today to learn from Chris and JJ and Joe about how to design an encounter. Not how to run a campaign, not how to think about your world, not how to come up with awesome NPCs, but when you've got people at a table who want to play, and you've got them on the road, and they met at the tavern, and they had drinks, and they love each other, and they're going, and they walk into their first cave, their first dungeon, their first side alley, and they encounter bad guys. As a game master, whether it's Dungeons & Dragons, whether it's Shadowrun, whether it's uh, Dungeon World, and maybe we can talk about the differences there, but... I guess I'm thinking mostly kind of 5e, something where you've got hit points, where you've got challenge ratings. How do you know how many bad guys to put in there, what type of bad guys, how strong they are, and how does the ability level or character level of your party players affect that calculus? It's a big question, but I'm kind of looking for a specific answer. And knowing this group, I'm imagining they're not going to give a formula and say you get three guys with this many hit points minus this CR to Y. But having said that, let's spend 15, 20, 25 minutes talking about it. Okay, Uh, and cut. 
Since we have a special <laughs> guest, yeah. I want to throw it over to Chris first. Cool. Um, yeah, you could do it that way if you want to be mathematical. Uh, I think that's kind of pointless. Like, for me, it's like if you're playing music and you're just like going to go exactly by the notes and no feel, that's worthless to me. you know. So for me, being a DM, I try to be cinematic about it, like how would the scene play out. So I don't really care if I have the right amount of like this many bad guys against equal amount of this many good guys, you know, that doesn't matter. I don't think you want to try to have it where it's going to, even if they're like outnumbered, just have it be like an epic scene where they could still cut through maybe a bunch of schlep low level guys, maybe have a couple like high level guys that are equal to the number, but they still have to get through this like pile of like low level guys first and then deal with the bigger guys. So don't go, never go by numbers. I don't think that's just a waste of time. Awesome. So JJ, if you've got a totally new GM, totally new, and he's got the monster manual in front of him or something equivalent. What does he think about in creating that first encounter? Um, I would recommend, you know, first, when you, when you first design the encounter, go with the location first. You know, where are you? What monsters make sense where you are? Um, you know, and just because the monster manual says kobolds are, you know, quarter CR or half CR, or at most two CR... You can put class levels on them and raise their CR. You can make those kobolds as powerful as you'd like. Um, you don't have to stick with the monster manual. Now, that's a little bit more advanced than just you know basically running it from the stat block in the monster manual. But what I, what I would definitely say is make the location real. Okay, so um, before we move, move on from that, can you just, for the people at home, one, kind of give a, a definition or a general sense of what CR is, and two, if you want to modify CR, do you do that just by adding hit points, or is there something else to that? Um, challenge rating is essentially uh, the game's mechanic of um, basically leveling the playing field between the players, and the way I've been doing it, and it's worked out really well for me, and I don't think it's the official rules, but I add up the total CR of the players. So say I have four level two players. That gives me a CR of eight. If I choose a total CR of eight from the monster manual, that should be an equivalent fight. So that would be, um, you know, at core CR goblin, that would be four for each player. No, sorry, eight for each player. So that should be equivalent fight. Okay. All right. So CR challenge rating is the level of the characters. The, versus, su- the sum versus, of the level of the characters versus yeah. the monsters, and that's, that, quote unquote, that's how CR. I've been doing it. I don't think that's the official way, but it, it's worked out very, very well for me. Okay, so Joe, I know you're a little more fluid, particularly because you like Dungeon World a little bit more than the rules-heavy games. But let's say you've got an encounter, and you've set it up in whatever rule set, and you realize either your monsters are underpowered relative to what you want kind of the cinematic quality of the scene to be, or overpowered. In the sense that like maybe you want this to be a very challenging encounter for the players, and all of a sudden you realize like they're going to plow through these dudes in 10 minutes. As a game master, what do you do there? One of the easy things to do, for me at least, is if you know the monsters are the monsters you want there, use the environment to make the change. So if you've got, if your players are about to just plow through the bunch of kobolds that are there, and you want them not to, um, change it so the kobolds now have the high ground, 
right? Give them advantage on their rolls. Think D&D mechanics. Maybe the kobolds now have advantage because they have the high ground. The players have the low ground. And, and you could just flip it just as easily the other way around. Um, you can make it so that the terrain between them is difficult terrain. Make it so there's a chasm that the players have to jump over or there's a pit or some kind of trap or something. Use the environment that can make a big difference, not just the change in monsters. And the flip side to that is say you can't change the environment and the environment is exactly how you want it. The monsters are how you want it. None of the monsters in your world should live in a vacuum. They have friends. They have people they're working with. Maybe the kobolds have the, the kobold chieftain that needs to come in and join the fight if the, the, the fight is too easy easy um, find a way to augment that and if you didn't plan it ahead of time just think about it during the combat maybe on the fourth encounter not the fourth encounter the fourth round somebody says or one of the kobolds shouts an alarm and then you give the players two more rounds to actually do something before the somebody joins that combat right. that's one way to tip the tide one way or another awesome those are great points so what happens if it's the opposite? So what you're describing to me sounds what how you would compensate if the encounter was too easy. Or, or too hard. Or you too can difficult. flip it in both directions. Okay, so yeah. what do you do? Do you start fudging hit points? or? Well, that's a whole separate question. I don't know if you were going to get to that one. Well, I was going to ask about fudging hit points or having yeah. monsters run away. or you know What happens when you realize you overpowered an encounter from the monster It might side? depend on the story. Or like... For example, you might have, you know, a very powerful bad guy, but you crank up his hit points, but maybe you lower his armor class, you know, so they could definitely hit this guy, but it's going to take a while to bring him down. Or you reverse it, maybe he's got low hit points, but they could almost hit him like, out of four attacks, or hit him like one time, you know. Right. So it's just taking a while. It just depends how you want the story to go. If you want mm-hmm. the quick fight or get it over with fast or, you know, what you want to do. Right. And then the same thing, if it gets too hard, maybe it's too hard for them, you can bring in... You know, in my campaigns, I have, like, a lot of NPCs, you know, to help out. They want to come in and, like, bolster, you know, the heroes. Right. How is encounter design different if you're playing on a grid game versus a theater of the mind game? So, you know, if you're playing 3-5 or three or Pathfinder, which a lot of people are still playing and which is a great game, um, how is that different, JJ, in particular, I'm thinking, because you, you're playing both? Uh, I think a, the, the uh, with the map, uh, environment definitely becomes more real um you have to worry about line of sight issues um uh i mean corners trees shrubbery that all kind of adds into it um you can create choke points with theater of the mind or uh, with environment but theater of mind it's a little bit more fluid um but with theater of mind you know it's easier to set off traps um you know because you didn't have a designated spot on the map marked as a trap um, so yeah, I think with, invi- with the map, it's a little bit easier to, uh, visualize the battlefield. Um, it's more strategic in a way, um, than theater of the mind. Awesome. So well, what let me, let me chime in on that one for a moment, because for me, one of the big things when you go to grid based, when you go to a map is the stat block matters a whole lot more. So when, when you read in the stat block adjacent on the map, that means two squares touching each other. On theater of the mind, that means they're near each other. There's a huge difference there when you're describing it. So if on the map you have two goblins standing next to each other and they have um, in their stat block something that says when they're standing next to each other, they increase their AC by two, 
um, when they're adjacent, well, on yeah. the map, you can see that they're touching each other. And when players, especially in encounter design, when players walk into a group of goblins that are all standing next to each other in a line on a map, it is a lot more obvious that when then when you describe in theater of the mind, you walk in and there are four goblins near each other. There's right. a huge difference there. That's and it's a, good a point. The big difference in the play style, because the players may then think of um, Fireball. Fireball is going to hit a certain radius. And in Theater of the Mind, you're thinking, first off, are they close enough together? On a map, you know right away. As soon as you open that door, you know that they're within your 30-foot radius, whatever it is. So that plays a big, uh, a big role in encounter design. Yeah, that's Very a good, good point. point. I definitely feel like there are a lot of times in 5e, which for us is theater of the mind, where yeah. you, we've kind of done something and said, are, are they close enough? And you've kind of said, well, yeah. yeah. Which you can is, move which far is, enough. That's yeah, which enough. is cool, but it's different from on a grid. Yeah. Um, I also feel like attacks of opportunity and reach are less significant in our 5e games yeah. than they would be in a 3-5, 3-7-5 Pathfinder game. Or 4th edition, or which fourth. we haven't played. Yeah, which yes. I've, never, I've yeah. just never played it. That's why I don't mention 4th at all. Um, Chris, do you distinguish between the use of minions and main bad guys? And what I mean by that is how do you throw out the low-level one or two hits in their dead guys versus your main bad guys in an encounter? For me, I mean, like, like if I have these powerful villains, they're villains, okay? They're just not minions. They're villains. They, have, they might have names. They might have a backstory. They have an agenda. They're trying to do something, you know? To them, they're the heroes, not the bad guys, you know? So they're, 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 they're characters as well, you know? They're NPCs, but they're, you know, they're villains. So those low-level guys, just nobody. So they're, they're the red shirts. I don't care about what happens to those guys. I'm just throwing at them to, like, bug the players, you know? There's no interaction. There's no banter back and forth. They're just a, a wave of damage. That's all they're doing, you know? So that's, for me, that's how I kind of break it up, you know? Like a villain might have a name. He might be like that guy you've heard of before, you know, or that old dragon. Like, man, I know that guy. He's been around. He's, you know, not somebody easy just to push over. But in planning for that encounter, those minions still take time. They still take actions that the players have to use to deal with them oh, right. before they get to the big guy. So I guess what yeah. I'm wondering as kind of a new GM is, you know, if, if my players are spending their first round or two killing the, the one-hit goblins or whatever, the one-hit kobolds, that's time where your big bad... Uh, vampire is powering up his you know power attacks and doing damage to you how do you balance that it's really up to like it's gonna be the tactics the players want to do they might be like all right you guys go after these low-level guys keep them busy i'm going after the main bad guy you know if he's a vampire maybe it's the paladin i'm going i'm aiming for him you guys take out these other guys you know run interference for me jj what's the hardest thing because you're a very experienced dm and you've played in a lot of systems what's the hardest thing if you're playing with a group of experienced players when you say, I want these guys to walk into this particular room or this particular dungeon and have a challenging encounter, what's the hardest thing to plan? Um, creating di- different aspects to that. Because with experienced players, they've memorized the uh, monster manual backwards and forwards. I mean, you said you read through the whole thing. You're trying to become more experienced players. So you know generally what every monster in the book can do. Um, one of my favorite things is like where I throw a wrinkle in there that the players weren't expecting. Um, case in point, the one time I told Joe, um, you know, he was he was fighting one-on-one with something, and I said, uh, you get some kind of uh, feedback. You, you, hear, you hear like a ringing in your head. And he's like, all right, well, I'm going to open up my can of whoop-ass on this creature. And it was a psychic feedback, so all the damage Joe did to the creature, he did to himself. Yeah. You know, it's just a wrinkle that Ow. isn't, you know... Um, 
it's just a, you got to have wrinkles. Like one of my uh, favorite things with the whole low level guys is creating a multi tiered uh, fight. So like that, my players came into a room. Um, into a goblin warren. The goblins had managed to capture a werewolf, but the players didn't know this, and they were messing around with the werewolf. So when the players killed the goblins, the werewolf had, you know, finally woken up, gone into a rage, and came busting out of the cage. And the players, like, had just finished, you know, wiping out the goblins. Now they got to deal with the werewolf. Right. It's making those multi-tiered combats in order to challenge the players awesome you raised a point that i wanted to ask about so joe i'll ask you um and there may not be a good answer to this but there i think it's a, a tricky question of of kind of how you deal with metagaming knowledge of of the bad guys particularly in D, where even if you don't read the monster manual start to f- finish you i mean most people who play know that certain creatures have certain vulnerabilities resistances strengths powers and in theory, I guess the players shouldn't be using that at the table. But as a practical matter, we are. I mean, a skeleton doesn't take piercing damage. How do you, if at all, deal with that? I like to make up monsters. That's my short answer for That's it. That's a great answer. Um, uh, for the most part, the, the monsters that we fight and the games that we, may, we play are monsters that I've made up. And the, the way that players get advantage is what you guys did in the game that we just played. Um, Chris had asked a couple of times, do I know any weakness about this monster? Right? That is where it comes up. So it's not a player knowledge. It's a learned character knowledge throughout. That doesn't help for a new GM who wants to play out of the book. The best you can do, in my opinion, is you ask the players to be adults. Yes, they're going to, they're going to use some of their knowledge, but... One of my biggest problems is I hate an adversarial relationship. I never feel it is the DM versus the players. I never feel that. That's just me. I hate that. And I know a lot of people think it's the way to go. If you've got a player that's being a prick at the table, kill him. Kill their character. Get done with it. That's how my older brother runs, man. It's him against the character. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) So I don't like that. There are people that take that path. And, And maybe at the right table, that works. And you just kill the play, kill the character off, not the player. And... Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, once that's done, once you get to that point where you have that understanding at the table, then if somebody steps over that line, you you just say right out, "How would your character know that?" Right. Just ask it straight up. Don't don't beat around the bush. Just how would your character know that? Because if you don't give me a good reason, then we're going to say your character didn't know it. Right. And move on from there. Especially if you have people reading adventures ahead of time, like, you know. Oh, yeah. gosh. Right. Published adventures. Yeah. But you got to throw, like like he said, throw the curveballs in, you know. Right, right. So um, Joe raised a great point. Or actually, uh, I in, did? in what Joe was saying, you raised a point about your oh, brother shoot. and the yeah. way he, it wasn't he just me. kills players. <laughs> How do you deal with player death? There are times where even if you're not being a, a dick, for lack of a better word, as a GM. Actually, player death is much different from character death. I'm yeah. sorry. Well, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, you How do you just deal with like dig a hole? You're totally right. How do you deal with character death where you're not necessarily trying to kill them? You weren't being a jerk. But they rolled bad, and especially at level one and five e, like they're dead. I know I was just talking, but let me start this one. Yeah. Because we handle it, I think, in our podcast different. I think everybody who's in the podcast, except Chris, I guess, because he isn't here normally, um, probably knows. Before we start every adventure, I ask, "Are you all right with your character dying?" I mean, this to me is very important. I want to know if the player is okay with the character death. I think that's important. Um, I do this in my regular games, too, in that 
I want to know because if I honestly, if I have a player who says they're not okay with their the investment in their character going away, I will make a conscious effort to make sure that character doesn't die. I don't. We don't need an unhappy player at the table. Uh, yet, if there's somebody who says, I'm fine with my character dying because maybe I wanted to play something different anyway, let's make a glorious death out of it so that we can have a tale to talk about and let that player move on to the character they wanted to play next. So I just want to throw that out there because we've had that experience here. That's great. Um, yeah, I think the um, character death, it just adds facets to the story. Um, you know, like it could cause the party to uh, refocus their, you know, have a very singular focus on a goal, you know, to for vengeance for this character, so on and so forth. Or um, possibly, you know, you have some kind of uh, nether region of hell or something. You got to go and rescue the soul. Yes. Um, you know, there's it just adds more to the adventure. Cool. Yeah, that was perfect. I, I agree with him. It's kind of like you could still use that death as like a, another piece of the campaign to continue along like it's said, definitely you know. a plot hook yeah yeah exactly yeah. i mean you might have to rework where that that person might have to play somebody else for a session or you know maybe have them roll take it the place of an npc for a time if they can get there like if they want to keep another character you know do something like that awesome so it serves as a catalyst yeah it could to yeah. drive the, the story unless forward. like joe said like yeah just get rid of that person anyway we don't I've care got a you know? question so, as GMs, how do you deal with the unexpected? Because the one rule well, across unexpected ever happens. <laughs> all these games is the the players never do what you expect yeah, them to you do. Gotta, I'll take this. Well, I'll take it first, I guess. You got to roll the punches. Like for example, I was running like the Savage Tide campaign. It deals with a lot of demons and stuff. Demogorgon. You're dealing with Igwill, like the Witch Queen, and you make alliances with these demon lords to fight this. You know, all these my, the enemy of my enemy is my friend type thing, and. Obviously, Igwill was going to screw you over later. Well, one of the characters pulled a fast one on her. I'm like, all right, I got to roll with that. You know, he pulled, he betrayed her, and I got to, all right, I guess she's not going to pull off her plan. You just got to kind of like improv, you know, that's the path. Well, I wanted the path to go this way, and now we're going this way. Okay, but eventually I'll get it back to where I need it to be for like the end fight or whatever I need to do. Just kind of like got to take that detour, you know? Right. So what's a good rule of thumb? Sorry, I'm taking over. No, here. that's great. What's a good rule of thumb for a new BGM? Like how many, quote unquote, little encounters do you plan? So like for a one-hour play session, how many do you pre-plan? How many little battles or encounters do you plan? Um, That's, that's definitely taking a... Uh, a litmus test of your players find out what their uh personalities are like you know um case in point our dungeon world game has turned from a very combat centric to a very role play oriented thing and i don't think joe's made a couple of comments about it just going you know this is complete role reversal of what you guys were doing yep. and that's yeah. a big change um i would say that uh based on that and it's a it's kind of echoing what JJ just said, but what I look for is you can have as many of your little sidetracks as you want, as long as everyone on the tra- table is still smiling. Yep. Yep. Even if I'm not, I'm still overnumbered, <laughs> overnumbered, overruled, outnumbered. Um, put those together, I'm overnumbered. But as far as planning it, if you're not running a pre-published campaign, because this is very important, if you're running a published campaign, then just follow it and steer people back to where it needs to go to finish it, especially if you're new and you're just trying to follow it by the book. Don't be ashamed to say, like we did with the D&D starter set and others we've run, Yeah, I'm sorry, it's not in the book. We can't handle that right now. 
here's what we can do. Right. And, you know, and don't be ashamed to give somebody a freebie. Maybe the only information the blacksmith has is that's a magical sword. And if somebody wants to ask them 20 other questions and they just keep going to say, look, I'm sorry, all I have here is that's a magical sword. So don't bother with any other questions. And that allows you, uh, in a pre-published adventure, to stick. Now, if you've written, say, three adventures or three encounters, you think it's going to last you the game session. And by by the end of the first encounter, you're almost done with the time you've set aside. If everyone's happy... You don't necessarily need to push back to the original, um, the, the original line. And if you've written it that you have to complete A to start B to get to C, then maybe in between sessions come up with a way to go from A to C. Right. right. Well, that actually, and I know other people have something to add, but I want to jump in there yeah. because something, you know, I read a lot of books about game mastering and dungeon mastering and all the kind of classic texts. And there's this idea that, you know, the dungeon master really doesn't want to plan out the adventure. And the, your players are the ones who create the adventure, and you have a framework. But having said that, I, knowing myself, I'm going to have encounters in mind. I'm going to have traps in mind that I want to see. And some of the things I've read have said literally, like, you know, your players come to a fork in the road. You've got a trap on the left. They go right. Th- then they never see your trap. And to <laughs> me, that doesn't make any sense because it seems to me if I've got a good trap in mind, why don't I just put that somewhere down the road on the right fork? And if I've got a dungeon in mind that they never went to because they didn't go that way, why don't I just pop that in on the second floor down the path that they did take? I mean, is there any reason that my thinking is wrong there? No, you could always do that. You could always have, like, no matter which fork on the road they pick, a trap is always going to be That trap is right. always going to be there. I mean, if you've got a great idea. Yeah, always. Yeah. You could yeah, always kind of, like, that's how you kind of use NPCs. You know, you kind of. Not that you railroad or force your players, but like, hey, you guys need to go check this out because whatever. Yeah. You, know, you kind of force them to like, you kind of set that in motion, you know? Yeah. I mean, the only reason I ask that question is in some of the kind of classic books, there's this idea that almost like you have a map in your head, and if your PCs don't go to that side of the map, they never see it, yep. which to me just doesn't make sense because I would take the great stuff from there and just move it over here. Um, so it sounds like we're in agreement there. And the same thing is like, um, so the DM has this great idea and he wants to implement it. At the same time, you don't want to um, punish a player if they have a great idea and they choose to implement it. Um, case in point, I was reading one uh, story where the, the it was a newbie DM with a new group of four players. So everyone was new to D&D completely and they were playing The Lost Minds of Fandelver. And um, the player got this brilliant idea to get like a bunch of sheep's fur and um, beaver's pelts beaver's pelt maybe <laughs> and they were going to smoke out the the cave the original goblin cave to force all the goblins to come out and the the dm was like he's like well that doesn't make any sense because there's no way they can handle every single one of these baddies at the same time because the way the dungeon design is set up is you handle this group you handle this group you handle this group so on and so forth if all the goblins that were in that cave came pouring out the mouth of the cave at the same time. It would overwhelm the level one group and they'd all be dead. Right. Um, so, you know, he, the newbie DM from one of them, I mean, brilliant. He said there was a back entrance or a back, back exit to the cave instead of, uh, I don't think I'd part of, I'd never actually yeah, read I don't it. remember it yeah. for sure. But, but yeah. um, or there's a chimney in the second room and the air yeah, gets out, you know, but so the first guys come out. Don't penalize, don't, don't say no to the players. Right. Uh, yeah, right. that makes sense. So uh, make, also, let me add one yeah. more thing. You got your great trap. If the players find a way around it, let them. Yeah. Don't just force the trap on them. If they have a clever way around it, whatever it may be, right. let them do it. Because otherwise, you're taking away their clever idea. 
your clever ideas they didn't know about. You've just learned about theirs. Right. Let that one shine. Throw your clever idea in later when they have, well, stupid ideas. Right. <laughs> so right. Mickey may... It's inevitable. <laughs> no, no, that's great. So Mickey, you may have other questions. I guess my last question would be if you kind of were thinking about advice to a new, G, new GM with respect to encounter design, what would you tell them not to do? And you may have already hit on this, but you know, what are the one or two things that make sure you avoid in planning for this? Uh, you know, what, what would you say, Chris? Oh, man. What not to do. Well, I can say that don't ignore your players. Um, look, don't just look at your stat blocks and your everything else. Look at your players. Are they smiling? Are they enjoying themselves? If they're on their phones, they're doing something else, they're not enjoying themselves. They're bored. And that's when you need to either cut the encounter short because it's going entirely too long, or you need to do some kind of external variable to make it more exciting. Got to just something to re-engage the players. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I'm hey, trying to think of like things what not to do. I mean, yeah, it's it's like you said, don't like make sure everybody's having fun. You know, it's the same thing. Like, is it too much combat or too much role playing? You know, like got to find that happy medium. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like for me, it's just yeah, it's more about the story than like what's the action. Sometimes, like what's the whole picture as opposed to like a one little piece of it. Yeah, it's funny for us because on a podcast, if you look at kind of our day of gaming, I feel like we generally have great balance. But if you look at it in one-hour segments, like our first hour today, no combat, like role play, yeah. really pretty mellow role play. Yeah. And then you know, if you look at it in one-hour segments, it's not balanced. But if you look at it as a day, we almost always have uh, a really something, good balance yeah. of what we're doing. Um, I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well uh, Joe, any final thoughts? Well, what, let me add something that I would not do is don't overwhelm the characters on your first encounter. Make it damn easy. They should shine. They should come out of that first encounter. And I'm talking new GM, new players. Um, that goblin ambush that we went through. The first oh time we God. played and had a bad recording, and I think everybody got wiped out. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> it was, was nasty. It was rough. Or actually, the first no, one no, was the easy. First one, we, we, we the first one was easy. The second one, it was different. Um, Two people went down the second try. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, try to design your first encounter so the players come away thinking, I am really playing a hero. Then, Or at least someone who could become a hero. Right. Yeah. Gradually then make it more difficult. I can't, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people dismayed that their character died in their first combat. Fair. You can lose a new player like that. Right. Yeah, a brand new player, yeah. first combat combat i'm playing a wizard with four hit points and you drop from the ceiling yeah. with some shadowy night stalker thingy that just hits me for 25 and my wizard that i just spent three hours creating is dead i i so i should roll up a ranger then right because they have more hit points and they can hit harder is that, that that's what you're telling me so you can disillusion somebody away from what they wanted by overdoing it at the beginning. Let them shine, especially, in my opinion, through your entire first session. Let them leave your game table thinking, I'm playing a cool character. All right, awesome. Mickey, other questions while we're here? He answered my question. Yeah. Um, my other question, I guess, would be, so as a brand new GM, do you play with experienced players or do you play with newbie players? Is it going to be a case of the blind leading the blind? Or <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it matters. So, like for me, you don't want to be like rule centric, where it's like, oh, they know all the rules, so they're trying to like bypass a bunch of things. Like that's not how it should work. It's however you want it to play out. You know, what kind of story you want to tell, and they're just having their input. You know, putting their variables in. 
Well, that's a good point. Like, I worry about GMing for JJ, for example, even though I love him personally, I feel like there's, I wouldn't even be in the same universe in terms of knowing the rules or how to run the combat. So part of me is like, you know, I want to do a game, but I don't want JJ to be there. Even yeah. though, like, I'd love to play with JJ, I don't, you know, so that, that's a, yeah, I don't know that there's a real answer to that, but I guess. I guess just the answer is just don't play with A-holes. <laughs> no, that, would A-hole. that would be nice. J-holes, because yeah. I, I fit there. Well, no, but I think part of that, well, like, you know, Joe had reached out to me and said, you know, he wouldn't mind playing with me. And I guess part of that is just being upfront and honest with your players about what are you looking for? What are you getting? What can I offer? And. You know, if you've got someone who's going to be a hardcore rules lawyer and that's what they want, like, I'm not going to be the GM for them. If they want someone who's going to try to tell a really good story and just have fun for a few hours and drink beer, you know, maybe that's my game. Yeah. And plus, um, I think, too, you need to, like, the DM should, he has the final call, man. He's running the game. And, or like, she. Uh, you're right. And don't, and don't be like a dick about it. Like, it's my way or the highway. If, if the group's like, having trouble, like, well, would this be plausible to come off? You could try to have a consensus, but I think he should have, you know, or he or she should have the final call on that. <laughs> right. I totally agree. He or the Having said that, you know, without belaboring the point, I do think that's difficult for a new GM to say to someone like a JJ or a Joe, nah, I'm going to rule this way, even when you know you're probably wrong. But I totally, I hear what you're saying, and that's great. But, but to be fair, though, the only time you need to rule is when there's a discrepancy at the table. So you're only picking a side. Right. Yeah. And in that case, what you're doing as the DM or the GM is you're coming down on somebody's side. You you at least have one friend in this mm-hmm. conflict. So don't worry so much about what the rule is because house rules. I mean, yep. we all, all do that. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and to some degree, you can rely on like you often will say, JJ, I'm going to look to you for yeah. these rules so that I can focus on the story or I can focus on the encounter or whatever. And, and here's where you take it upon yourself as DM to say that's your ruling. Your ruling is to take the advice, the determination of that player. Right. I think that's You're giving point. them the gavel to bang at that point. Yeah. At, yeah. At, which point, at which point the rule comes into effect. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Final thoughts before we close? Joe? I, I'm great. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, just say you're awesome. Jake. Oh, I'm awesome. Yeah, yeah. my my Koofy says I'm awesome. <laughs> um, uh, what, what I let me just throw in there uh, uh, for a minute. Um, it really depends. And, and Kurt, you mentioned this earlier. Have an upfront conversation with your players. Don't wait until after your first session. After your first session, you should be asking, "Did everything we talk about meet your expectations?" It should be a job interview essentially. Before you start, you should be talking about. Here's how I plan to run. I want you guys to be heroes. I mean, remember, when we started this, and I say this on almost all of my games because I don't like adversarial characters. I want cooperative characters in my game. It's the only way my game works. So talk to them. What type of game do you want to run? Is it going to be high magic, low magic? Is it going to be heroic? Is it going to be sinister? Are the players going to be playing in a gritty scene? Get everything up front. Talk about character death. Talk about... Um, how long your session should last, and, and all of that stuff. Because at the end of your sessions, you should be asking for feedback on if everything went the way you expected, and if not, move on to, to fix it, to change it. That's what I would say. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier, Kurt, so I wanted to, to hit that. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Um, as, as far as like the whole rules versus story thing, um, I think one good uh, implementation of that is something Joe and I have done, which is the co-DM um, that was a lot of fun. I was able it to was. do nothing but basically encounter design and that sort of stuff. And Joe, you know, pushed the story along. I played an NPC that I got players to actually hate. 
<laughs> like have, really like hate. really I've almost, done that before almost decked him yeah. Just <laughs> like yeah. inches away from it wasn't him. Saunders was it no, no it wasn't, wasn't Saunders, Saunders. <laughs> Everybody it, was, it was forgetful shopkeeper yeah. uh, excellent excellent Chris, any final thoughts? Uh, just a little bit of reiteration, reiteration on like Joe said, like we're like know your players, you know, like are they more Game of Thrones or more Gallivant, you know, or you know, <laughs> is it hardcore <laughs> violence and you know, sex and violence, or is it more lighthearted hero hero thing going on? And figure out, you know, what kind of stuff because my stuff's more hardcore and violent, and even though it's fantasy, I got I try to do hyper realism with the combat things like that, you know. So yeah, just figure out what you guys like, or I throw in a lot of intrigue and stuff and political imaginations going on where my guys would get into that but other people might be like that's so boring I just want to hack and slash all day you know right. so you got to figure that out right okay. awesome all right hey, I guys. want to hear if Mickey has any final thoughts no that's interesting is it either tits and hits or gore and right. I like it awesome. that's cool y'all this is very very helpful to me I appreciate you taking the time to stay today to record a little sidebar for Adventures from the Shed uh, this is Adventures from the Shed. Check us out at adventuresfromtheshed.com. We are going to sign off by saying thank you for listening. Thank you, guys. Bye, Until everyone. next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Later. I feel like I'm the only girl here. As someone preparing to jump into the world of game mastering, I found this discussion fascinating and helpful. I felt like a Padawan to the Jedi Masters, and I appreciated all of their thoughts. We hope you enjoyed this sidebar from the Shed. Now go forth and play. Or even better, run a game and introduce the world of gaming to some great new players. The preceding podcast was brought to you by One Joe Young. You can find us online at adventuresfromtheshed.com.